Rigged, Episode 9. In this episode, Jamie, Ilias, and Chris talk to the Springfield PD reporter, Stephanie Barry. Stephanie has been reporting on the excesses of the Springfield PD for years for Mass Live and The Republican. She has been focusing on the Greg Bigda incident recently, and much of our discussion focuses on that case. Please enjoy the conversation, and as always, like, subscribe, and write a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode of Raked. All right, we are back here, um, and today we have a special guest on Rigged. Um, it's uh, Stephanie Barry. Uh, Stephanie is a reporter. Actually, Stephanie, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, if you, if you don't mind? I don't. Thanks, Jamie, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm Stephanie Barry. I'm a reporter with the Republican and Mass Live in Springfield, Mass. Um, I cover many topics, but among those are police community relations, police misconduct, and political corruption and organized crime. So light topics, you know, like gossip and stuff like that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's all very light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, easy breezy. Yeah. Yeah, easy breezy. Uh, but so the reason that so we have been uh, our last few episodes, we have been going over the uh, Springfield Police Department. Uh, we we did an episode on the federal investigation into the Springfield Police Department, um, which was the only federal investigation done under the Trump administration. And it was of Springfield, Mass. So that, that's it, it gave it some weight there um, as to what was going on there. Uh, or just, you know, a lot of issues, let's say. And um, and then our last um, episode was on uh, Greg Bil- Bigda, a former narcotics detective, uh, still with the police department. Is that correct? He's still an employee there? Or technically? He, yes, Greg Bigda is still on the payroll. Um, following the not guilty verdicts, it's become complicated for HR and for the city. So my sense is, um, the police commissioner does not want Greg Bigda back in the building, but he was acquitted by a jury. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I think there's some wrangling going on behind the scenes in terms of do we just pay him back pay, which is under state law he's entitled to, but he also has been um, employed otherwise. So that mitigates it. But Greg Bigda has been an enormous problem for the Springfield Police Department on many levels for a few years now. And, and d- does it, to your knowledge, does it go beyond just that interview or that, that um, did it all start with the interview of the two teenagers in the stolen police car, that case? or or? So that's a complicated answer and bear with me. Um, sure. If I had to describe this case, it's it's not been linear. It's been like buckshot. There are plots and subplots. Um, So the whole thing started with a stolen car outside of a pizza shop. Mm -hmm. One of the rookie um, narcotics detectives, Stephen Vignalt, left his car running at 1030 outside of a pizza shop in kind of a high crime neighborhood in Springfield. Mm -hmm. Expected to go in and get out. But as he was picking up their meals, he um, saw his undercover car, which had no scanner, you know, no markings, yep. the police car, mm-hmm. speeding away. So, of course, he's embarrassed. The 
PD is embarrassed. And you would think that would just be enough, but oh no. <laughs> it, it just extrapolated from there in like the most vexing way for the police department. So that night, um, they heard a be on the lookout, which we call a bolo as reporters. Um, a few hours later, after Stephen Vignalt um, had to go back to his superiors with this tail between his legs and say, I got my car stolen. So then over the radio, they heard the car was spotted in a nearby um, suburb. So a high-speed chase ensued. And they ended up getting the car back and arresting three juveniles who had stolen the car. And the kids didn't know the car was a cop car because it was Mm -hmm. undercover. It was unmarked. Right. No scanner. Yeah. No markings. So, but that wasn't the end of it. So in terms of reporting, we reported on the stolen car and being recovered at that time. And this was in February of 2016. And and this is where you came into it. Did you do a report on on the stolen car or did you come in later? I, I came in later. So I, that that story was reported on by a colleague of mine who just kind of does the police, you know, press releases and tweets. And he just does kind of the standard breaking news. Yep. And it was a story that was interesting enough, but a lot of the details were left out. And I'm not suggesting that was necessarily by design. I don't know if the um, PR guy at the time even knew the backstory, but the backstory was the story. Right. So we did a story on that. It kind of quieted for a little bit. In the meantime, Greg Bigda got implicated in a domestic situation with another police, a female police officer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that tangled everything up. He got suspended for that. He busted into her house drunk because she was dating another police officer. So he got suspended for that for a few days. I wrote about that. And also another colleague wrote about that. So when I wrote about that, I ended up getting an anonymous letter in the mail. Mm. Hey, uh, what about Stephen Vignal? Somebody accused him of excessive force because he kicked a kid in the face at this arrest. Jeez. Right. Right. So I started digging into that and then I did that story um and then after I did that story Stephen Vignal then reached out to me because by then he had resigned over what we call in Springfield the kick it was that's what they call that aspect of the case that he was accused of kicking the juvenile who was on the ground after he had sold the car and in handcuffs and prone on the ground and he kicked him in the face, allegedly. Mm-hmm. Vignal, I must say, had to, he he didn't have to, he denied it and does to this day. So I just want to okay. be clear about that. All right. Um, so then it just kind of snowballed from there. So I did the story. I met with Vignal. He told me all of these things that the narcotics department was engaged in, allegedly including 
on the job drinking. He said that Big Dick kept a bottle of rum in his desk drawer. He said that they outfitted a soda machine with beer, um, that they would sometimes grab, you know, a few bucks from drug defendants, seizures to buy alcohol. You know, there were all these kind of peripheral allegations. Yeah. And so I wrote your crimes. I mean, yeah, some of them are crimes crime to, to take uh, drug money Evidence and to buy case. booze with it and drink on the job. That's, uh, I mean, at, 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 at lightning speaking, that's not a great look for the department, especially with what happened with um, Kevin Burnham, right? Yeah. I would agree. And all of these cases <laughs> kind of crashed into one another when, when you said not a good look. I mean, that's collectively. All of these things, some of them which were separate, brought the DOJ scrutiny on the police force. And that's something no police department wants to deal with. And as you mentioned, Jamie, they were the only department in the nation that got a smackdown under the Trump administration. Yeah, Mr. Law and Order. Correct. So that was notable. so after that, when I reported on Vignal, then I called the police commissioner for comment and he immediately referred me to the IIU department who called me and I said, I'm a journalist looking for answers on a story. I'm not a witness in an IIU case. So the response I got was underwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, you know, the investigation ensued and the feds came in. But initially, Stephen Vignalt was a federal cooperator. Okay. And some time went by, they became disenchanted with him. And suddenly he was not a cooperator, he was a defendant. So oh. he he got charged along with Bigda in late 2018. Now, was he changing his story to your knowledge? Did he did he give them the same information that he gave to you about the on-the-job drinking and the taking of drug money to buy um, beer? Or- no, I believe his story remained consistent, but there were a number of complicating factors. Uh, most importantly, some witness- witnesses came forward because mind you, not only was there a criminal investigation and an IIU investigation, there are civil suits happening both in superior court and federal court. So that's what I mean when I called this case buckshot. It just went everywhere. It wasn't linear. There were all kinds of layers of scrutiny, lawsuits, um, criminal liability. And so... I know that he got arrested by the local PD um, when he was coming out of the federal building <laughs> to meet with the feds. The local cops <laughs> arrested him. Oh yeah, the whole the whole thing's been. Well, at least they knew where he was, right? So they- right. <laughs> well, that was part of it. So yeah. a lot of the court officers in the federal courthouse are retired MSP or Springfield PD. So there was a worn out for him because of the domestic issues. So Stephen Vignal, um, his ex-girlfriend, which was also Bigda's ex-girlfriend, you see what I mean by buckshot here. Yep. So they got in a bad place. She got a restraining order against Vignal. He 
went to her house around Christmas and put like a snowblower and decorated her um, porch and she got freaked out. He thought he was being romantic. She didn't like it. So she got a restraining order against him. And so he was arrested outside the federal building coming out of a meeting with the feds by the Springfield PD that enraged the feds. Yeah. Some months went by and I can't tell you what the crucible was when they got disenchanted, but they did. So he ultimately got indicted along with Big Duck initially. Wow. Yeah. And so fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Um, so so there was a trial though. We we had we had alluded to the trial. We we talked about the trial that he was just found at the end of 2021 in December, uh, not guilty by a jury, right? Now, was that surprising to you? Like, but, but given all of this evidence that you've been going through? We listened to the audio during the last uh, last episode. So, you know, yeah, very surprising to me, at least. Yeah, we were shocked. I, I was shocked um, just given, it, I mean, he was saying, pointing to his shoe, talking about the blood on his shoe, and and basically threatening the kid if he didn't tell him exactly what he wanted to hear, he, he would kick him in the face again and blood would be, more blood would be on his shoe. That was, you know, um, among other things, obviously. Right. So, um, so in terms of reporting, I heard about that video in 2017, I want to say. Springfield is, I often refer to it as a, small town masquerading as a city. So there's not many secrets in Springfield, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in the little sewing circle of the legal community. So I was reporting on something else and someone said, hey, do you know that this video is starting to float around? Defense lawyers are getting it as part of discovery. It's pretty outrageous. And so I saw it and agreed to keep it off the record until I pushed and pushed and pushed. And I thought, I think the taxpayers and the citizens need to know about this. I think it's important. So we were the first ones, Matt, the Republican and Mass Live were the first ones to publish that video. Right. And it was a little bit of a tough sell, but um, I think they made the right call. In terms of the verdict, I guess I would say that the kick charge um, the brutality charge, I thought they were going to have problems with because I saw that the witness statements were kind of inconsistent and all over the place. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking your responsibility as a juror seriously, if you have reasonable doubt, that's where you have to land. So that right. mm-hmm. didn't quite surprise me. The abusive interrogation counts, I thought might be a jump ball depending on the sensibility of the jury. You don't know who you're going to get on a panel. Um, So I guess I would say I wasn't terribly shocked um, because I kind of anticipated the problems and vulnerabilities they may have with that case. And also they made some judgment calls and I certainly, you know, wouldn't question the Fed's judgment. But they gave Vignal immunity in the 11th hour. And 
no one ended up calling him. Neither the defense. I'm sure both sides were afraid. They didn't know what he was going to say under an immunity agreement. But he was kind of the elephant in the room, which was problematic. I mean, the whole case was really hard to put on. Yeah, we previously talked about the fact that um, they gave him immunity, I believe, and he wasn't called. I think we discussed that at one point, but um, it was just the timing was fascinating to me because this was one of the bigger um, cases for the feds right before Rollins took over. So I'm just wondering if it was a last minute decision, whether or not the outgoing U.S. attorney, um, you know, what his thinking was there is it's curious to me. Yeah, that's a good question. But I can tell you that I know that um, Maine Justice in D.C. was definitely driving this case. They were in the driver's seat. Rollins, even before she was sworn in, she came to opening arguments um, Mm -hmm. in the Victor case. Uh, I, I just, you know, I watch a lot of trials, but I'm not a trial lawyer. I think at a minimum, he was just such a wild card. So who knows? He, under an immunity grant, I suppose, theoretically, he could have gotten up and said, yeah, I kicked the kid in the face and just mm-hmm. blown the whole thing up. Right. And because they they vacillated between Vignal being on their team to then indicting him, mm-hmm. he was an unpredictable witness. Okay. And so I don't know if that was a mistake to not call him because I know all the jurors were, I, I myself was, you know, if I didn't know the backstory, I would have wondered, well, where is this guy? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I just think it was a hard case to put on. And when they indicted Bigda and Vignal in 2018, the feds have a reputation of only taking slam dunk cases. Um, in my experience, they won't take anything they think might be a loss so when they brought this case, I was kind of surprised because at least the the kick was definitely not a slam dunk because there were witnesses, witness statements that were just all over the place. Hmm. And a lot of the witnesses on both sides of the aisle had baggage. Uh, and so I have a tendency, see, I, I don't look at things like a juror with reasonable doubt. You know, i just my, I'm, I'm outside of it. See, and, I kind of do because I'm in court yeah. all the time. So that's how exactly. And, and you, and yeah. you see like how you see it from the perspective of in a court, can this be a conviction? And the, there's a weight too, though, right? That, that comes with it of trying to convict a police officer. That is a hard thing of, of anything really. Right. I, I mean, just in nationally, it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. It's, <laughs> It's definitely a tricky thing to do. And I think people feel passionately on both sides. Yeah. So, you know, and I know that this judge, Mastriani, uh, Mark Mastriani, he took a long time being thoughtful about vetting the jurors, longer than a standard trial. It was much more extensive. The voir dire, the questionnaires, voir dire were much more extensive. And it is a tricky thing because people feel strongly about law enforcement. And they feel strongly about these cases. And you don't know where a human being is going to to fall on that spectrum. Right. And that's true. And not a lot of people or hardly anyone that I've noticed know that the United States has more jails, more of its people than pretty much any other country uh, per capita. 
Um, and I think knowing that uh, makes me slightly biased towards, you know, um, uh, people that are are being affected by the by law enforcement and not on the law enforcement side because I I just I see countries like England that has you know one person sh- or in Germany it's probably not a fair comparison because it's you know that not everything lines up but when they only have one person getting killed by police a year or zero you know and we have thousands um, I, I know per capita we have more people we have more guns. We have a lot of, you know, it doesn't line up, like I said, but that to me strikes me as very, very uh, strange, you know? I wouldn't disagree. And I mean, the statistics have been widely reported, but I think for some people who, and this is just anecdotal on my part, I think for some people who don't have they're not a journalist. They're not looking at the stats. They're, they're just a regular person. Let's take my mother, for example. I was using yep. my mom as a, an example of like your average American voter. Yep. You know, the, the high incarceration rates are almost abstract to them. Right. Um, right. And so people like you and I are kind of watching it up close. It's different than someone watching news accounts on television. Yeah. Or... You know, someone just sitting there thinking, well, these boys stole a car. Right. They deserved everything they got. There are lots of people out there like that. And clearly, we saw what happened. Absolutely. And it's it's the mentality that, that I always say on this podcast is um, you, can't, you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That is the default that everyone comes to. Which is vastly yeah. oversimplified. As Absolutely. Absolutely. But that is all that they, I mean, they will lend all of their being to, you know, uh, knowing everything about what Tom Brady had for breakfast, you know, or, you know, things that are just kind of absurd or irrelevant or silly. But they, like all they, when, when it comes to uh, the question of justice and, you know, guilt or innocence or whatever, they, they just... They they say that phrase and they walk away from it and don't put any more thought into it. I think that's a majority of people. That's why we have the situation that we do, in my opinion. I do. I think, you know, the past four years have ginned a lot of people up politically. But I will say I would be remiss um, if I didn't add, I'm going to try to talk to more, but I did speak to one juror. Mm-hmm. And I think they were pretty thoughtful about their verdict. So whatever you think about it, mm-hmm. I think they took mm-hmm. it really seriously. I, I don't want to dismiss them as people who have no brain or moral, comp- or moral compass because I just don't think that's what happened. But heading into the trial, I thought the kick, as I mentioned before, if you have witness statements that are all over the place, it's a problem. And the second abusive interrogation charges is they were very, very subjective. And because these jury instructions basically had to be built from the ground up, mm-hmm. there were some really hot button phrases in there, not by design, but that invited subjectivity. So I was kind of hmm. waiting for that um, because when I researched other cases, um, with defendants that had be had been charged with that abusive interrogation, I couldn't find anything that 
totally lined up with this case. So for instance, in previous cases where there were convictions, the detainee had either been killed or grievously injured or served a lot of time in jail. Mm -hmm. And so one of the jurors said to me, I'm not going to send someone to prison for harsh words. Right. Mm. Interesting. Do you remember how long they were out for? How long they were deliberating? I do. Um, The jury was out over two days, not two full days, but over two days. So let's say 10 hours collectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think they debated mostly, actually, I know that they didn't debate very long about the the kick. Mm -hmm. Um, They all agreed there was reasonable doubt. They debated mostly about the videos, and that was about perception. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we've talked about on this podcast the problem uh, where there's no video, right? Um, uh, I mean, think of the thousands of people who allege misconduct by the police and they can't even get their day in court because essentially everybody um, believe, does disbelieves them essentially. And then now when you have a video, somehow the videos don't seem to do what people think they would do. Um, and that's true even for, um, for body cams and things like that, that they sort of present a slice of reality and it's, sometimes it's hard to make anything of it. Um, but it is uh, uh, alarming to know even with a video that it's hard to get, uh, you know, some of these issues um, examined fully. But I I wanted to uh, go back to a a comment you made earlier about, um, uh, I think, uh, Big does background. Uh, And, you know, one thing that I was struck by uh, was I uh, looked at what does the American judiciary have to say about Big Da? And there's the answer is a, a lot. There's, he shows up in cases, his credibility is discussed, his, uh, uh, the allegations of his misconduct are discussed. Um, he, uh, quoting here from a federal, uh, from, from a, a case uh, with a federal judge Ponzer, um, it's reported that he had uh, at that time 25 civilian complaints, including 13 alleging violence. Um, there were more than one allegations of him kicking handcuffed people in the head. Um, and uh, or threatening people, including with a gun. None of those allegations were sustained by the Springfield Depart- uh, Police. Um, and but what really caught my attention is that there were three state court cases, well predating any of this uh, that we're, we've been talking about, where he was found to have uh, lied. And 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 so I'm struck by a number of things. One. Uh, despite Springfield being a small community, where does that information uh, come home to land? Because in, in my experience, or at least my the idealized version of my experience, if a police officer is found to have lied, that should be sort of the end of the utility of that officer for, for swearing out complaints or, or having crucial uh, police reports uh, in an arrest because you're not sure this person's telling the truth. Uh, what... What knowledge do you have of Bigda's background? How did you come across it? And and what impact, if any, did it have in this case? Because it sounds like he got kind of, everybody buried their head in the sand and pretended we don't have somebody who has 26 civilian complaints against him, um, including allegations of uh, kicking other people in the head. Uh, So where did did you, how did you learn about it? And what happened to that information uh, as far as the public's concerned? 
So um, I must say that Big Dip was not particularly on my radar before this, um, but he was the guy who was like the king of the narcs. Like he had quite a bit of swagger. He's, I must say, grudgingly, he's pretty intelligent. I've seen him on the stand. Um, he's a good police witness. He was well-liked within the department. I think there was a lot of looking the other way. Um, I've heard the argument that, well, if you're narcs, you're doing no-knock warrants. You're, you're, you're doing the most dangerous thing that police do on the streets routinely. So, you know, we're going to cut you a little slack if you're a cowboy and you're good on the witness stand and you're a good detective. But um, once the videos came out, um, he was essentially banished from testifying on the witness stand. And so I couldn't tell you the number of cases that, that got knocked out, um, drug cases that got knocked out because he was in, at the center of them. But there were quite a few. But they were, after, they were after this case, meaning Correct. because of this. So not nothing that had happened before, including any findings uh, as reported by Judge Ponzer of, of credibility problems. Those don't seem to have had any impact on him, as far as you know. As far as I know, no, because I know um, he's not on this mythical Brady list that, you know, some cops get put on when they're found to have lied. And so they can't testify anymore. He was not in that category, as far as I'm aware. Did any of the jurors mention um, maybe having a concern about what might happen to his cases if he was found guilty? Like, I know you mentioned one said, uh, you know, I'm not sending someone to prison for words or something like that. So he, that person is thinking in part, at least, about the punishment, which he's really not supposed to. You're supposed to be looking at the facts themselves. But. So um, you're right. Um, and no, I didn't hear any sentiment about, well, if we convicted him, I wonder what's going to happen to all these drug cases. I mean, that fallout has, has kind of already happened. Already happened. And I don't think that was on their mind. At least he didn't mention that. And I mean, so going back to some of the, the words, um, he Bigda, what struck me about that video is how casually he said, I'm just going to lie. I'm going to lie. And you're going to, and whatever's going to happen to you is going to happen to you because I, you know, I can just lie and say whatever I want. And he was so casual, nonchalant about saying that, like that clearly to me, that struck me is that is his methodology because that is what he said in that video. And he knew the, he pointed to the camera and said he knew he was being recorded multiple times. That was the most outrageous part yeah. of it to me. Well, not the yeah. most, but among the most of outrageous things to me. It's So I have never seen him. I've never seen another video of him in, interrogating a suspect, which so I can't judge. But I can't imagine this was his first time at that rodeo. Right. Um, but the fact that he was pointing to the camera and saying, you know, we don't have these in Springfield, so I'm going to get you back there. And I mean, the stakes in this were so low. Right. He was talking about... They got the car back. I can see why they were annoyed. They could have just charged the kids with, you know, which they did. Yeah. And walked away. So. It was ego. It clearly, it was, to me, it was ego run amok. And I don't know if they were drunk. Like, I don't know 
like clearly there was, it sounds like the circumstantial evidence sounds like there were, they were drinking at least in the past. I don't know if they were drinking that night, but some- The allegation like, is they were. Yeah, yes. But that so, never came up at trial either. And see, that's, you know, and so part of me can't blame these juries, these jurors, if they don't know all the facts and a lot of that, and if this stuff isn't presented, then, I mean, of course, if it seems like these people, if these guys were accused of being drunk, then they probably did kick someone in there or they, it, it's more believable that they would go that far. And um, it's just, to me, it, it just really, like you said, the stakes were so low and they just went off, they flipped out and went off the handle. And, and to me, like that means that something other than that is lying underneath the surface. And the fact that they kept or Bigda kept saying, like you said, we're going back to Springfield where there's no cameras. We're going back to Spring. Like, I can't wait to take you across the border to Springfield. That like, like literally Springfield is his gulag. And he's saying that. Yeah. And, and, and I think that was true. And I think he believed that for a reason. And what never really came up much and I tried to pursue it was, there were also Palmer police just standing by, yeah. smoking, watching what everything yeah. happened. And that was their house. Yeah. Um, it, so it a lot so of it is bothersome to me. Yeah. Like, like a uniformed officer just standing there, like leaning against the wall while this guy's threatening to kill teenagers right in front of him. Has there been any inquiry into why there was um, such passivity uh, in Palmer? Uh, because I think that that's, you know, there's a few things that bother me the most about this case. And, 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 you know, the, uh, I always go back to the, oh, it's just a few bad apples refrain, but the expression is actually a few bad apples spoil the bunch. And, and if the bunch doesn't take any action, that's exactly what happens. So why, wh why was there inaction in Palmer? And has there been any form of inquiry into that? That you're well, right. I can tell you, I tried to inquire, but I just got shut down. Um, and I can only go so far. I, I can't storm the Palmer Police Department. You know, the, yeah. the feds did not take any action against them. They may have felt they just had bigger fish to fry. But the person who actually exposed the kick was this rookie officer in, in Wolverham, which is a nearby suburb of Springfield and Palmer. And so he casually told his superior, oh, I have blood on my hand because this happened. He kind of summarized, you know, what had happened at the scene of the arrest. And the superior said, well, you have to write a report about that. And so if he didn't do that, this rookie officer who's now a police officer in Air Mass, out, you know where it is, out to her Eastern Mass, mm -hmm. I don't know if any of this would have come to light because the the videos that we're discussing mm -hmm. were sitting in an IIU file gathering dust because they were so focused on the allegation of excess, excessive force and the kick mm. that those videos didn't come to light for months. And once someone saw them, actually, I think it was the defense attorneys and the DA's office that saw them started distributing them for discovery. Right. And former Commissioner Barberi went up to the, no, I'm sorry, the DA, Anthony Galuni, went to Commissioner Barberi, he's no longer there at the time, at a picnic, a community picnic, and said, hey, I think you need to know about this. 
And that was six months after it occurred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, how's the potato salad? What do you think? Right. It was <laughs> that kind of thing. And so, you know, I'll go back to what I'm, I said it just kind of, it was for me as a reporter, it kind of cascaded. It was like one disaster over, you know, then another and then another and another. And it was almost hard to keep track and write about it because there were so many layers to it. Yeah. And that that is what it's, like you said, it's like a big buckshot that's like opening all these doors that you only get a very limited window into. Like to me, cops casually buying stuff regardless of it's if it's alcohol pizza anything with drug money massive problem especially yeah. considering all of the evidence officers who have killed themselves in the state because of that very issue and frank you know framingham uh and springfield especially like i mean we're going to do something on kevin burnham because i think that is a huge can of worms his relationship to Sonia Farrakh notwithstanding, mm-hmm. like he, he, that's that's 400 grand at a minimum that he stole. At a minimum. And, and I've heard insiders, because I covered that case too. Yep. Um, I've heard that's a low ball number. Oh yeah. Am I sitting there, you know, counting the money knowing that nobody was obviously, but right. um, you know, and one thing was, so Tragically, Kevin Burnham lost his only child. Um, And a lot of people said, well, that's when he started to spiral. I I couldn't feel more terribly for, you know, him and his wife. But I don't think that's where it started. Um, That's when the AG's office decided, for whatever reason to you know, kind of start that case in the accounting, perhaps because it was too overwhelming just to go back, you know, 10, 12, 20 years. But I find it hard to believe that it started there. He was in that unit for decades. Mm. Um, and like I said, there was all these kind of parallel things going on within the PD. And to use your phrase, it, you know, it just wasn't a good look. And I think all of these things collectively brought the DOJ down on them. But I will say, I will say this, and I said it to Rachel Rollins, so I'm not speaking out of school. She had a media availability a few weeks ago. I said, you know, that DOJ report in the end just kind of felt like a public scolding to me. I'm not sure what the hmm. outcome was, what the result of. I, I mean, I'm glad they looked at it, but it was no consent decree. Yep. The, the report um, lacked a lot of detail. The PD and even the DA's office are still tangling with them to say, can you just tell us which cases and which witnesses you interviewed so we can actually try to do something concrete about this? Whether that's artifice or not, the DOJ has countered, no, we're not telling you. Go look yourself, which I guess is maybe a fair answer, but it it doesn't really get to the root of the problem and it doesn't get to a solution. Right. I was puzzled by the outcome of that too. And can I say real quick with that Kevin Burnham thing about, um, you know, the, the tragedy with his son and it's starting there. To me, that reminds me, it's the same methodology, in my opinion, as the whole Sonia Farak only started using drugs in the last six months. 
Like, well, we saw how oh, that was a bunch it, of horse crap. So, right, exactly, exactly. Right. But that's what it, they they like to frame things and to limit the scope to right. kind of, and, and that's a pattern to me. And I think we heard that with, we heard that with Annie Dukin. I think there yep. was talk yeah. about how she had a, a miscarriage. Um, yes. And that things spiraled, uh, you know, downwards after that. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, I think we're all sympathetic to the pressure, especially in law enforcement, I think to the pressures and the demands of that job. My question is, why do you always learn about, that someone was maybe kind of losing their grip uh, on the position well after there's a tragic event for somebody else, right? I mean, if you're struggling in your job, there's resources, there's observers in the department who can say this person's not cutting it anymore. Why does it seem like we just tolerate, even as crediting all of these uh, uh, excuses, why do we tolerate uh, uh, sub sub uh, standard behavior until it's like too late for somebody else. That's the question I have. You're right. You're right about that. I think there are two answers to that. One is perhaps complacency. The second is maybe genuine empathy. You know, you want to kind of give somebody a break. Um, You know, I'm not sure. I don't have all the answers to everything, obviously, but there always does seem to be some like retroactive tragedy. And like I said, I have nothing but sympathy for all of the tragedies. But if we're really trying to support people, is that the way we're doing it? Right. Um, are you really supporting them? And what are you... I mean, to me, it's it's a cop-out and it's, it's, it's defending, you know, bad behavior and just trying to sweep it under the rug under the name of, we don't feel like doing all the work to get to the bottom of this. And unless you get to the root cause of why these things actually happen... They will continue to happen, and and I think with Springfield, um, we have not seen, we have not gotten to the root cause of some of this behavior. We've, I think, we're just beginning to learn about it, and um, it, it's it's truly as a normal like citizen, it's terrifying. This is terrifying. This is absolutely terrifying to me that um, you know some of this stuff goes on and happens to you know kids like fifteen year olds. Right. It's it's nuts to me that that this would occur and and people just seem so lackadaisical about um, getting to the bottom of it and making sure that this didn't happen to other people that maybe weren't filmed. Right, and I think it comes down to however you want to paint it, however you want to design it. It just comes down to accountability. Right, and whatever that looks like, it can be a kind brand of accountability in terms of looks like you're struggling, you know, we're wondering what's happening here. I'm not saying that people have to be, you know, hardcore like parole officers, but we all have to just pay attention. And at least in the law enforcement world in Springfield, I feel like has kind of a throwback quality. You know, I pay the most attention to this police department because this is where I work and this is, but I don't think they're alone there. Um, and, and I must say, like, I know a couple of the cops in Springfield leadership who I think are responsible and well-meaning and do a really good job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the commissioner, I think she has said some things that were not great. I don't think she's a bad person. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't think right. she wants her cops to go running around kicking people in the face or stealing money or... So 
I, I don't know what to do. I, I, I wouldn't know what I would do if I was in their position, I guess I would say. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough gig. and a, But a lot of it comes down to our laws and what our expectations are, right? I think... Uh, we we say it all the time, but the drug war is a failure, is a monumental failure, and um, it has not stopped drug use. Um, and it leads not even a little, not even a, it, it's in, <laughs> drug use has increased. It's a joke, and um, I think we need to get serious about these laws. There, there's a person running for I can't remember her name, but she's running for governor, and she is basically committed herself to ending, you know, all... Was she the Harvard professor? Maybe? Yeah, it's the Harvard yeah. professor, yes. And, mm-hmm. and she's the only one that's come out and said, I want to end all, you know, drug convictions and, and I don't want to do this anymore. And she is the only candidate out there that will say something like this. And until this becomes a, a nor- like something that people adopt and say, yes, this makes no sense... Um, we're we're gonna keep experiencing this stuff. I mean, you, you end the drug war tomorrow, and, and it's not gonna solve all the problems. Because, like you said, there's accountability problems. There's other things that go on. But when you limit what the police are responsible for, I think we we as we we set the police up for failure when we have them do these kind of things, like arrest people for drugs and criminalize behavior like that. Because it just they're, they're, what's their mission? How can they stop it? They, they can't. You can't stop the desire to take drugs by arresting someone. Right. But I also have attended many, many community meetings over the years as a reporter. That's I don't know if they have C3 out in um, Boston, but it's community policing. It's, you know, mm-hmm. they call it different things. But I'll go to a community meeting and the citizens jump up and down. You know, I have children. I'm raising a children. I, I'm raising a child in this community. And all we see are hand-to-hand drug deals on my street and and people get really angry about it as a quality of life issue. And I get that too. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to have to, to have moved to a suburb. Um, you know, I've lived in inner cities, but it's kind of a catch-22. I agree with you. Like, it's not making any sense. It's not meaningful. It's not making good progress. It's criminalizing addiction. But on the other hand... You know, you have moms and dads and grandparents in a community saying, why aren't you policing, you know, these hand-to-hand drug deals that occur all day long and all night long in my community? Right. I, it's just, it's, it's a difficult topic. Well, it, the, it really is. Our focus has been uh, on this podcast, not so much whether the war on drugs is a, is a good idea or not, although we've certainly covered uh, uh, our opinions on that. Um, the question is, are we doing it the right way? And, and I think the problem with what, what and, and, and our, our reference to how the public has been conditioned to view drugs is that we're, it's opened this, this, this um, a, a safe space to misconduct. And as long as the public thinks, oh, they're, they're going after the really bad guys, I'm going to let them rough them up, kick them in the head. They can plant evidence. They can steal from the evidence room. It's okay because it's those people and I want them out of my, 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 um, my radar. Um, and and so it's really tolerating a lot of misbehavior, and I think that that it's unique to drugs um, because there's so much money involved. There's such high volume, um, and and so many of these cases are misdemeanor cases. That really it's it's an addiction issue. It's not a dealing issue, and you know it's all of this. And so our question is: Is there a better way? And is there a way to do it without creating another problem, which might be as bad or worse, uh, where there's just this. Uh, uh, lack of accountability and people running amok. And I think we see that in Springfield. Um, 
I'm sure Chris has seen that in many other uh, uh, police departments that, uh, from some of his cases. Uh, I've worked on a case involving Framingham. I mean, you know, just Google Framingham and all river. Your eyebrows will will will, will uh, fly off the top of your head. So it just seems like we've opened the door to this behavior, and we now have no way to stop it. Right. I think people are. You're right. I think people are desensitized to an extent. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but I can't think of a better one right now. But you know, we don't like drugs. We don't want dealers in our neighborhoods. So all bets are off. We can treat them like garbage. I mean, the only thing that's has is heartening to me is that at least in Hamden County, you know, we now have drug diversion programs. We have gun courts. We, I'm not saying, is it going to save the world? I wouldn't argue that, but it's mm-hmm. a step in the right direction. Right. And just the other day I covered, we have a new ish program in our federal court system. Um, where, as you know, the not, you know, not post Booker, but you know, you can get jammed up for a lot of jail time for, for, for drugs. And even just like I covered a guy the other day. He was looking at a lot of time for dealing two grams of crack on two occasions to an undercover informant. And he was looking at a lot of time because he had a previous, um, he had previous convictions, but at least our, our lone, you know, federal judge in Springfield who used to be a defense attorney, who used to be the district attorney in Hamden County and is now on the bench He's looking at, we can't just treat everybody the same, like they're cookie cutter. Let's try to look for some, you know, young men who have potential and we can help them and just intensify probation to try to stay on top of them in a good way. Um, I guess that's the only kind of silver lining that I see that some people in our judiciary and in the DA's office are waking up to that. Um, Yeah. That's a good thing. And I think, you know, the more that happens, um, the closer we're going to get to getting out of this. But the legislature can't cop out of it. They need to step up too. And they can't be a bunch of scaredy cats of the police union or whoever's going to cry foul. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. One thing that the uh, legislature could do, um, just this case in particular with the uh, involvement of juveniles, I know in Illinois... They recently uh, passed a law that barred police from lying to underage kids during investigations. So that's one one thing that the legislature could do here that would go a long way, um, you know, in making sure that um, a um, you know juveniles who um, you know are actually factually not guilty end up uh, getting forced to confess. They're faced with uh, you know, the improper police tactics. Uh, but the other thing is we're not going to, you know, be is we're not going to end up with more officers like Big Da who seem to have feel, they feel empowered because they're able to lie to people all the time, right? You Because nothing's ever happened to them before. Right. right? So the legislature right. can step in and say, at least for juveniles, uh, as a starting point, uh, here's something that we can do to uh, make the police department more accountable. But mind you, I appreciate that point. And thanks for letting me know about the Illinois program because I wasn't aware of that. But (laughs) beyond just the threatening and the terrible language and, you know, everything that we saw, we had certain other 
laws in place, like you're not supposed to interrogate a juvenile without uh, mm-hmm. a parent or an interested, interested adult. adult. Yeah. Right. And you're not supposed to do this and you're not supposed to do that. So those rules and laws were in place and he ignored those too. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else, I mean, barring following police around all the time or, or you know, we, so body worn cameras only came into Springfield probably a, it, maybe within the last two years, COVID has given me a little bit of like, I've mm-hmm. I lost a year there, but it's, you know, it was a long fight with the union and now they have the body worn cameras and we had a police involved shooting in Springfield um, a couple of weeks ago. It was quite tragic, but the police, it was a justified shooting. It was horrible, but it was self-defense, but they're quick to, you know, put forward the body worn camera footage when it suits them. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't, you know, it's a problem. So beyond streaming the body worn camera footage all the time, which is not feasible, I wouldn't think from a technological standpoint, or just having like a babysitter for every cop everywhere, it just seems like overwhelming to me. Yeah. That we'll ever get our arms around this. Yeah. Well, it's got to, I mean, studying how the rest of the world behaves and, you know, trying to start if 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 that is what your true objective so first of all you need to have the motivation to actually pull it in and stop it you know and uh that that's where it needs to start um and people like so i i saw in one of your articles um there was a retired deputy chief mark anthony mm-hmm. that was uh kind of part of these interviews and um giving his opinions uh, and uh, he said, in, in this is quoting one of your articles, eventually the interview turned to accountability over the big the videos. Um, and since they sat in a binder for months before the commissioner was made aware of them at uh, Hampton District uh, Attorney Anthony Giuliani at a community picnic like you had talked about. And he said, just, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And he said to that, uh, I don't know if anybody watched them, but look, we're not, this is not playing Where's Waldo, okay? This is an egregious case of a sergeant who has a lot of experience, who is a prime investigator in internal affairs, not documenting that there were cell block videos, there were cell block interrogations, and there were threats made by police officers. What does that feel like to you, that answer? That answer feels... It's like uh, a block, right? Yeah. 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 Nobody wants to take accountability for them. And in a way, I don't blame them. Yeah. You know, somebody does. And those those discs, um, those DVDs were just sitting there for a long time. And nobody wants to take responsibility for missing it. Um, You know, I get it. I don't like to admit the things I do wrong either. So I understand from a human standpoint. But no one ever really said... We miss this. We yeah, this wrong. No one to this day. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what needs to happen. Honestly, I mean, and I think we all know it. Um, but you know, until we get there, uh, th- this stuff will continue. I think. But, okay. Does anyone have anything else for uh, Steph? I'm just uh, interested to see how it pans out. With big yeah. The end. Yeah. One thing you've gotten right, Stephanie, is you've been uh, on this and other issues. And and I think we're all here uh, grateful um, to have uh, the media 
uh, uh, staying on something because that makes I think every, uh, all of this uh, feasible. Uh, and, and I wish all of the um, members of the media had your uh, tenacity. So thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yep, this is great reporting. And um, again, that's Stephanie Barry. Do look up her stuff on Mass Live and The Republic. Uh, it's great, great stuff. Give her some clicks. And um, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks so for having me. All right. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Thank you for listening to The Rig Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out. 